So today we're tackling a large chunk of scripture. Remember in our first message, we got Romans 1.1, the first half of verse 1, and we have averaged uh, an increase in the number of verses, the length of the passage we've tackled since then. Today we're going to try to get Romans chapter 2, verse, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 31. A little ambitious, so please listen closely, I'll talk fast. And um, before we begin, let's go before the Lord who is our maker and who formed these words and breathed them out of old. Righteous Father, righteousness and life are in you, and life is found nowhere else. We pray that you would speak to us from your spirit to ours as we are gathered here um, as a congregation, both here and abroad today, together with your saints around the world. Please speak to us your words, and through your words, impart some of your life into us. We pray that we would hear them and live. We pray that you would convict us of our sin. We pray that you would convict us that our righteousness is no righteousness at all, but that your righteousness is more than enough, and that in our lack you supply all our need. In Jesus' name and for him, amen. Okay, let's begin Romans chapter 2, verse 11. God shows no partiality. Our last message two weeks ago was a difficult one. We talked about um, hell and judgment, uh, damnation and condemnation. We talked about the obedience of faith. And we talked about uh, freedom in the gospel and life, life everlasting. We said that, uh, as in chapter 1, all Gentiles are, are unrighteous. We began in chapter 2 with all Jews are unrighteous too. Think the unchurched people and the church people, sort of. It's analogous to that. God shows no partiality. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? 
You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For how could God judge the world? For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, 
no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Amen. What is the law? Nathan said last week that for the purposes of our discussion, the law may be summarized in the Ten Commandments. Um, we'll read Exodus chapter 20 in a few minutes. But when the book of Romans is telling us the gospel of God's righteousness, is, it is not merely theological, it's relational. You saw all those words, justification, propitiation, redemption, divine forbearance, just and the justifier, and so on, circumcised, uncircumcised. The book of Romans tells us the gospel of God's righteousness, but it is not primarily theological, it is relational. From start to finish, the book of Romans is less about, is less about ideas and doctrines, and more about how Relation, how relationship is restored with our Father. The problem comes not at the point where his greatness meets our smallness, nor where his vastness meets our narrowness, but at the point where his holiness meets our depravity. It's as clear as the difference between light and darkness. It's as obvious as the contrast between day and night, although we don't normally think this way in our culture. One of our goals this morning is for us to get there because we're constantly being told in the back of our mind, you're a pretty good person or that other person is worse than you. And one of our goals this morning is to silence that voice because it's not true. 
it's as obvious as the contrast between day and night. The problem is not just that we love sinning, and we do love sinning, and we want to sin, and we can't even want to stop sinning without God breathing into us his spirit and life. The problem is worse than that. It's that we don't see that we have a problem much, perhaps most, of the time. The problem is much worse than I have a problem. The problem is I don't even know that I have a problem. We are blind, but we don't know that, so it takes something awesome and powerful and good. It takes something holy and righteous and good. It takes the law of God to open our eyes to our sinfulness. That's what the law of God does. The law of God is holy and righteous and good. What happens when we read this law? And we're about to go to Exodus 20. We say, uh-oh. We read, you shall have no other gods before me. And we realize God is maybe second place in our lives, maybe third, maybe right after family, maybe right after my rights or me getting my way or right after me having X or Y or Z. We put other things before him. So when we read the law, you shall have no other gods before me, we say, uh-oh. We say, oops. After reading any one of the Ten Commandments, there's no way I can justify myself. God would be righteous to condemn me. I am a lawbreaker. Let's go to Exodus 20. And remember, according to the gospel, God doesn't just judge us by how outwardly well we perform his laws or do the right things. According to the gospel, God judges the secrets of our hearts. So when we read Exodus 20, read it in the context of how do I think? And what do I want? God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands. Can you hear the echo? to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Even not caring about the Lord in your heart is a violation of this commandment, treating God as a vain thing. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, 
you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. Now remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus interprets this law, and he says, if you hate or curse your brother in your heart, you are a murderer. You shall not commit adultery. And if a man looks at a woman lustfully in his heart, he has already committed adultery in his heart. You shall not steal. It would be easy if it just stopped at you shall not steal, but we're going to get down to you shall not covet. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. Anything that is your neighbor's. Let's go back to Romans. It's no wonder after Moses brought the law of God down from the mountaintop and read it aloud to them, it's no wonder that the people are like, well, you go talk to God and we'll stay out here. You, they needed uh, somebody to go in between them, an intermediary. So, we saw in, uh, in Romans 1 that all Gentiles who have never read Exodus chapter 20, as, as we have uh, growing up in church, we saw that all Gentiles are still sinners without exception, and Romans chapter 1 made that case very strongly. Romans chapter 2 makes the case that Jews alike are all sinners and that there's no distinction and no partiality and that Jews are no better, even though they benefit better because they've been given this law and the law is holy and righteous and good. But what does the law do for me besides condemning me? How would I have known I am a sinner if the law hadn't brought knowledge of sin? Without God giving us his laws, how would I have known right from wrong? I'd have only my conscience to convict me, and Romans 1 says, that's enough. But the conscience is easily seared by ignoring and stifling it. How would I have known what God wants from me? And how would I have known how to please him? Last week, Nathan said that the law of God is applicable to us today. I'm quoting him because, one, it is a tutor or a teacher that leads us to Christ. I guess I'm quoting Paul. And two, it's even the standard of our righteous deeds after we become Christ's. The law of sin and death has condemnation attached to it. But the law of the spirit of life has liberty and grace to obey it now. How do God's commands now have liberty and grace in them? 
Because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. When God causes that wonderful and mysterious thing called justification to occur, a change takes place inside of you. All of a sudden, you want to please him. But let's back up a little bit. God shows no partiality. All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This is universal sinfulness, because although there are some hearers of the law, there are no true doers of the law apart from doing the will of God through Christ who has perfectly done the will of God and after whom we follow and by whom we are strengthened to, uh, to do deeds of righteousness done in faith. There's both law in verse 15 and conscience and both of them stand against us and the standard is God and his holiness as codified or summarized in the Ten Commandments especially. And God doesn't just judge my outward deeds that other people see. He judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, verse 16. So think about this. It says, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. So gospel means good news, and it's good news that God judges the secret things that I'm embarrassed to admit to myself that that even went through my mind. Amen? Amen. Good news. There is no gospel without the grace that God judges the secrets of our hearts by Christ Jesus. And you're a Jew, if you're, you're a true Jew, if you're a follower of Christ, and so you have the law of God, and so we have a very holy and high standard, and uh, we, do not, we do not come anywhere close to attaining to it. And there is no good news for us on a day-to-day -day basis except with the knowledge that Jesus himself is the judge. Um, look at verse, verses 21 and 22. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Okay. Get ready to raise your hands. Do you steal? And you say that one, who mu uh, that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So, I remember reading that and thinking, I don't steal. I have stolen, but like not much. And so let's just say I haven't. Let's just say I don't steal. We'll just rewind the tape a little bit. I hadn't stolen yet. Um, do, do I steal? Do I commit adultery? Do I rob temples? I don't think I've ever even been in a pagan temple. Raise your hand, or you could do it without actually raising your hand. Think like, have you ever read this passage and thought to yourself, well, I don't steal or commit adultery or rob temples? Have you ever done that? 
I've read that this way. We got one honest nod. So, and a few people, you know, maybe you, you know for sure, yes, I've done all of the above, so there's no question. But the problem here is that in the church, we read this passage, and our heart, something's, something uh, called our flesh, is whispering to us the doctrines of the flesh and the doctrines of our age. And this voice in the back of our mind says, no, you don't, you don't do all those things. And it's possible to grow up in church and still deeply hold this belief that I'm a pretty good person. Can anybody relate to that? I can. I'm not like a real fantastic person. But, but I have read this passage and honestly thought to myself, well, I don't steal or commit adultery or rob temples. And that it's like I'm deconstructing Paul's whole argument here. Expand this a little bit. Think of the things that define a good Christian in, let's say, church culture. What are some of those things? Um, it might be uh, part of it is how you carry yourself, how you talk, how you dress. Part of it is certain things that you just don't do. Christians don't do that. I can't tell you how many people have told me, you know, no, I don't smoke and I don't drink in a conversation about, you know, like, do you know the Lord? and they go right away to I don't smoke and I don't drink. Where are the verses about smoking? Let's just put aside this, the other one. Where are the verses about smoking? Oh, well, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and Christians don't smoke because that's damaging the temple of the Holy Spirit. That, that was doctrine that I received as a Christian growing up in church, in a pretty good church. And I had this deeply... I was gripping this mindset that I'm, I look like a Christian and I f feel like a Christian according to the, the little rules and mores, the, the standards. You know, you don't go to those places. You don't talk to that. You don't look at that stuff. You don't, you don't curse, you know. Like it, here it says later, you know, their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. How many of you have read this and thought to yourself, just straight up, I don't, I don't really swear. I don't use curse words, or I don't really. So I guess I'm not like that, and I guess that passage doesn't really apply to me. I've thought those things in my secret heart, and it's that thought for which I will be judged. Because that is trusting in a lie. But the word of God says that no one's righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. We've all become worthless. That doesn't mean you look like not valuable or God doesn't love us or something or we're not no longer made in the image of God and, and there's no sanctity of life. Um, in the Bible, there's, you know, in the, when it talks about fools and worthless persons and worthless fools, it's talking about people who, um, who have descended a great, to a great depth, and ignored and rebelled against and, and rejected the knowledge of God and his law. And, and the Bible says you're, there's no life there. If you were measured on a, on, a, on a balance, you know, where you put a known weight here and then you put something else there to see which is heavier so you know if, it, if it's exactly a true weight, you know, you'd be measured in the balance and found to be clunk, 
nothing. That was said, remember, in our study of Daniel, of King uh, uh, Belshazzar, right? Um, you are weighed in the balance. The problem here is that we, I, are often thinking to ourselves that as we compare ourselves on the balance of me and my spouse, or me and the guy across the pew, or the gal over there, or that person here or there, we're, we're weighing ourselves with the wrong balance. And in comparing ourselves to someone else, by a law that we made up or that was imparted to us as we grew up in church, we, we, we tell ourselves, I think, I think I'm, I'm doing all right at this thing. And we decide, well, I have more righteousness than the person next to me. And we get real comfortable with that, and we kind of settle into our pews, and, and, and we're good, and we're secure here, and nothing can shake me out of this, right? And nothing can take us out of the Father's hands. But we must, as Christians who are saved from the wrath of God, daily rid ourselves of all such things as these. Number one, the pride whereby we justify ourselves and condemn others, because it's God who justifies. We have to attack this thing at the root, and it's deep. Some of, some of us have that gift of grace whereby we've sinned so much, and in so many ways that are obvious, maybe even to others, that, ooh, that is a bad sin, you know, not like the other sins that aren't bad. And you have this grace of God working in you where the law of God has so thoroughly condemned you that, that you, or that has so thoroughly, has so clearly identified for you that you know, woe is me, I'm a sinful man. Who can save me from this body of death? And you are closer to Christ, in a sense, than those who really struggle with this idea that, I don't know, I just don't, feel like a sinner anymore, or maybe I never did, or I did, you know, yesterday when I did that thing, but that was in the dark, and then now it's the next day, and I've kind of sort of forgotten that, and nobody saw it, and, and that's what we do. The law is grace because it's a mirror. It's a mirror of God. God is there. Here are the scriptures. Here are the Ten Commandments. Here's the law of God. And we look at it, and we see him. And having this law is the benefit of being a Jew, as it says, of growing up with the commandments of God, because we see him. The law is also a mirror. If you turn it this way, I see myself. I see, oh, I thought that. I didn't steal, and I didn't commit adultery, and I abhor idols, and I, I didn't rob any temples, but I coveted what that man had. And I wanted to go on that trip or whatever more than I wanted to be in the presence of God. And I, I gave up pursuing God for this, for that hour or that season of my life. The Word of God is a mirror that shows me, when I read it honestly, the Holy Spirit supernaturally makes it like a living mirror. And I actually see, 
woe is me. So much of my prayer, whenever I recognize this thinking at work within me, I'm a, like I'm good and I just don't see any of my sin. It's kind of this weird, bizarre thing, but it's really, really, we get to that point. All the time we get to that point, perhaps daily. So I recognize it because I've been there before and I don't want to go down that road again because I know it will lead me to a fall. Pride cometh before the fall. So I start to pray, God, please convict me of my sin. If you get nothing else from this message, um, copy that. Learn to pray, God, please convict me of my sin. He will. And if you don't feel super convicted right away, be patient. (coughs) You will. That should be a regular part of your prayer life. Whenever you notice yourself not needing God, because the root of that is always pride. And so we get deep into this. So churches become places where we don't smoke, we don't drink. There are certain sins that hardly anybody commits, at least that we know about. And, and people look real churched up. And when outsiders look in, it's kind of intimidating um, because there's a certain culture that, that is there. And there's like an outward form of righteousness, but there's not... Um, but... Um, but what ends up happening is when outsiders see church goers for what we really are when we're living more in hypocrisy than in the gospel of God's grace, then they blaspheme God's name everywhere. And that is how people normally regard Christians. Christians are idiots. Because Christians wouldn't be so much idiots in our culture if we weren't so hypocritical. But who finds mercy with God? He who conceals his sins or whoever confesses and renounces his sins finds mercy. Praise the Lord. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 3. We're just going to skip through and hit some, hit some of the key points that, um, that are so easy to miss. Chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, verse 4, let God be true though everyone were a liar. Some of you are struggling with this, as have I very much. Let God be true though everyone were a liar. Can you be okay with that? If everyone in the world were wrong and God was the only one who was right, could you be okay with that? Or would something in you say like, no, 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 not everybody can be condemned? This is probably the hardest thing the hardest teaching I have ever received for me. Everybody's got their hard teaching. In uh, John, which, we, uh, which Teresa read, and which we'll look at again in our communion meditation, the Jews are grumbling among themselves, and to them Jesus said, like, 
unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and that's like so abhorrent to them, then like you have no part of me, right? You have no life. You know, you're condemned. And, and everybody's got their hang up. For me, this was probably my biggest hang up, and I can't wait to get to uh, Romans chapters 9 and 10 and 11, um, because uh, the hardest thing for some people in American culture is, is to, to throw away the tolerance thing and to embrace God being allowed to make a standard and then judge and justify some and declare others to be unjust and for God to be allowed to make choices that determine my destiny even as I am being held responsible for my choices. That, as an American, is one of the hardest things to accept. And if you're involved in, the more you become involved in evangelism and striking up conversations with strangers, uh, uh, serving on the evangelistic team at Wright State, you're gonna come up to this one again and again and again. Americans often just can't swallow Romans 3, 4, let God be true though everyone were a liar. Can you be okay with that? I can. And I think that the day that I accepted that, I took the most, what I look back to is, if not the most, one of the most significant steps forward in following Christ. My whole life was changed. You may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. It's just like in the book of Daniel. No one can hold back your hand or say to you, what have you done? No one. If you can receive this, you can say with Nebuchadnezzar, who I hope very much to meet in heaven, that God, you are just. Everything you do is right. All your ways are just. No one can hold back your hand or say to you, what have you done? No one can accuse God of wrongdoing. That's where we, church, want to get to. We want to deeply get there. And God can take you there. And for some of us, it's going to be a process. And if you don't go there, you won't go far in Christ. Maybe you're through the door. I hope, I hope so. But, but, but we've, got to, we've got to so undo the thinking that we've grown up with, and so deeply embrace, yes, God is allowed to do anything he wants and to be, to be comfortable with that, to settle into that. Because when you settle into that, you're settling into something that's like, although I don't like the term, eternal security. If our unrighteousness, verse chapter 3, verse 5, serves to show the righteousness of God, and it does, right? I sin, God forgives me, cleanses me, raises me up again when I have fallen, he lifts me up, and God is glorified. That's good, right? Did God, in God's provision, did he provide a way out for that temptation, knowing that I wouldn't take it, and he let me stumble? and he lifted me up again, and 
when, I, when, I, when he lifted me up, I worshipped him for his mercy and his kindness? Yes, I did. So God was in that. Was God guilty of the sin I committed? Don't talk that foolishly. You can't go there. Don't talk like that. That's Paul's answer to that objection. Don't do it. You're in great danger when you start talking and thinking like that. But we still have to think through the thought. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, and it does, what shall we say? God is allowed to do whatever he pleases on earth and in heaven. That's the answer to that. Why not do evil that God's grace and mercy may be more on display? Those who, those who buy into that reasoning are justly condemned. Don't go there in your mind. Have some of you gone there? Have some of us gone there? Yeah. Chapter 3, verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. Like uh, Greg often says, Greg, we hope you feel better soon. Uh, like Greg often says, um, I wasn't seeking God. He uses the analogy of the he describes a person who stands up in church and says, I was seeking God and I found him. Hallelujah! And, and that's not really what happened. If you could see past the natural, if you could see in the spiritual, if you could see what God was doing all along, Greg says, what, what he really did is, I was running from God, I was running from God, I got as far off as I possibly could, think Jonah, going to like the end of the known world on a ship, Right? I was going as far as God from God as I possibly could, and I got myself into a corner. I got myself boxed in. My mistake, and God had his, his loving foot, his hand, uh, right on my neck, and he, and, and he said, gotcha. And then finally I said, I repent. And then I immediately transitioned from that in my mind to, I have found God. You know, I was seeking for him. I was going through these kinds of reasonings, searching for God, um, accusing God of wrongdoing, and then eventually the gospel got through to me and I was convinced, oh, God is good. That, that was, this is my journey to faith. I'm describing it. Look at verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Remember, Paul is quoting Old Testament scriptures to describe everybody inside and outside the church. Evil intent toward others. The venom of asps is under their lips. What's an asp? Think a really poisonous snake. Okay? So, have you ever... I was going to say, have you ever been around a person who they said something and their words were just so poisonous, malicious, manipulative... Have, has God convicted you of doing that yet? 
I need that. Because this is talking about everybody inside and outside the church accusing, complaining, slandering, starting rumors, hating. I have read verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, and thought, I've never been a part of a gang that was lying in wait for to kill somebody and take their stuff. You know, like it says, don't do that in the Proverbs, right? And I read that, and I thought to myself, well, I've never, my feet have never been swift to shed blood. But Jesus, when he interprets the law, he says, if you hate your brother in your heart. The standard here is not how I'd like to read this, or public opinion in churches, or public opinion outside churches. The standard here, the balance is God's law and me. And all of us are like a a breath, about as heavy as a breath when weighed in the scales by that standard. And that's the goodness of God. The law is a mirror. It shows us his holiness and his character, and he is beautiful. The law is a mirror. If we turn it this way, it shows us ourselves. The law um, is a restraint on evildoers. It's effective in society as the influence of God's ways and the, the lifestyle of the kingdom of God as kingdom culture is spread throughout the earth, not just conscience, but the law of God become, works its way into, into civil government uh, and is codified in secular laws, but it came from the law of God is delivered to God's people. And for millennia, it has been working its way into secular civil government because God is good, and he sends his reign on the righteous and the wicked. Praise God. So the law of God also serves to restrain evildoers. Um, you know, in, uh, in ancient Rome, which we'll touch on, uh, I'm actually hoping Nathan preaches that message. I think it's Romans 14. Am I getting that right? Why does, the, why does he bear the sword? He does not bear the sword for nothing. 13, thank you. Um, you know, the, the civil government has the death penalty, let's say, uh, to, to keep people who would recklessly sweep the neighborhoods with doing whatever they pleased and taking lives and the word of God has gone forth into civil government, and his ways have become a part uh, even of evil governments ruling. Not that they're all righteous, but some of it is just a gift from the Lord to restrain evildoers. Satan is on a chain. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So there's that mirror. I can see myself clearly. The law also restrains evildoers. The law also is a mentor or a tutor to lead me to Christ. But now we see, and we'll spend more time on this later, God's righteousness for justification is provided by faith in Jesus Christ. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested. What does manifested mean? Manifested means if you have an idea and then you 
put it into something physical or something visible. So the righteousness of God was put into a written code inscribed on tablets of stone by the finger of God. That's the written word of God. I tell you that this passage is not just telling us about theological ideas, nor about the written or visible manifestation of God's righteousness and his law. This passage is telling us about a person. It's not just manifestation, it's incarnation. And that's at the heart of this contrast in Romans 2 and 3. Our lack and God's supply. Our lack was revealed by the law, but Jesus Christ is the living word of God. He gave us the written word of God, his codes, his commandments, his statutes, his ordinances, which are beautiful, pleasing, holy, righteous, good, and beneficial, and blessed are they who have them, blessed rather are they who keep them. But in Jesus is the embodiment, the incarnation of the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God, so the law and the prophets bear witness to the kind of righteousness that only Jesus can grant. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all, are, all who are in him are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We don't have time to go into uh, the terminology as much as I'd wanted to. Um, redemption is making good, buying back, um, um, getting it for all it's worth. Redemption is where, uh, in not very theological terms, God sees, uh, God is pleased to see you and receive you as his daughter or his son and make you beneficial to his service, a member of his family. All of that is in redemption. In Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is a satisfaction of God's wrath through sacrifice. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, by the way, you should spend years of your life thinking about God's patience, God's divine forbearance, waiting for you in kindness so that his kindness would lead to your repentance. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. This is, I think, the most powerful verse in this passage for me. God was patient. He made a new way of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus so that God might be just. He really did punish sins rightly. No sin was left unpunished. And Jesus was punished for our iniquity on that cross. He received upon himself the righteous wrath of God for every one of my transgressions. Probably every week, um, sometimes daily, I think about Jesus being punished for the sin that I just committed. After I sin, and I'm aware of it, that's often one of my first thoughts, and has been for a long time. 
and thinking that has, has um, cultivated in me a deep gratitude and a deep love for him. That's the gospel process. That's the daily gospel process. He is just. There's no fault in him. He judged rightly. He did not fail in his, one might say duty, but that's not the right word theologically, in his nature. He perfectly fulfilled his own nature to judge, and he judged all sin justly. There is no sin that by the end of time will not have been either laid on Christ or laid on the unrepentant sinner. He is simultaneously both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Praise the Lord. I think we need to stop there. More next time. I'm going to real quickly read my conclusion. When God causes that wonderful and mysterious thing called justification to occur, a change takes place inside of you. All of a sudden, you want to please him. Why do we want to please him? Because we're not alone. The spirit of God dwells in you. Christ is in you. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Romans 8. Thanks. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. For if you live according to the flesh, if you follow your natural desires contrary to God's law, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. This is relational more than it is theological. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. That's what the spirit does, and he uses his law to do it. He adopts us. The spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Praise the Lord.